صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. It's May Day. We're going to talk about May Day and its implications to Australia, but also labour rights particular to Palestine and the way the Israelis treat the Palestinians. Just very quickly, as most of you would know, but in case you don't, the history of Labour Day in Australia spans over a century. It's an important date that remembers those who struggled and succeeded to ensure decent and fair working conditions happened in Australia. During the mid to late 1800s, the working day was long and arduous, and many employees worked in excess of 12 hours a day, sometimes six or seven days a week. There was a big push in the late 1800s for workers to work an eight-hour day, and that labour movement was successful in getting an eight-hour day, in large part to a meeting that was held in Melbourne in 1890, and on May the 1st that year, a local newspaper made reference to it as May Day. And so that's a bit of a history of May Day. What we're going to do is pivot from... May Day and its rights for workers all over the world to talk about workers' rights within Palestine. And we're joined by Norda, who's a Palestinian, a 48 pal, an Israeli citizen, if you will. But before I introduce Norda to you, I'm going to first read some notes from the International Labour Organization. They released a report late last year and early this year to talk about the Palestinian labour market and just how grim it really is. Unemployment's rampant, Protection has failed. Its employee rights are stifled by occupation. The Palestinian economy can't meet the needs nor aspirations of the Palestinian people. Women and youth are often worst off. In no other country is women's unemployment as high as it is in Palestine. No other part of the Palestinian land is as distressed as Gaza. After 14 years of paralyzing blockade, the enclave survives on humanitarian life support. Jobs are scarce and sporadic. Hope is lost for the most part. If workers could leave, many probably would. However, Gaza would thrive if it was permitted to. Many workers are skilled and entrepreneurial. The problem of Gaza requires first and foremost a lifting of the inhumane blockade. In Gaza, the labor market and employment situation is particularly bleak. Unemployment continues to climb and has now reached 45%. About two-thirds of the economically active women and youth are looking for a job. Most alarmingly, almost all young women who participate in the labor market in Gaza, 9 out of 10, are unemployed. Key basic indicators illustrate the extent of the continued misery. Over half of the individuals in Gaza are classified as poor and almost three quarters as food insecure. GDP per capita has steadily declined and reached US $1,417. This is 60% of what it was before the blockade started 14 years ago. Work in Israel continues to be coveted by many Palestinians in the West Bank. The number of Palestinians who are working for the Israeli authorities has increased. According to the Palestinian Central Bureau of Statistics, around 135,000 Palestinians work in Israel and the settlements. Most cross over to Israel on a daily basis. The majority work in construction. Some 26,000 workers are estimated to be undocumented. Both groups 
often experience precarious conditions and deficits in protection. Work by Palestinians in Israel has been associated with significant deficits. These include the long wait and crowded conditions at the crossings, an abusive permit regime in which brokers and employers have undue power over the worker, a lack of comprehensive social protection with wages paid only in cash, accompanied by frequently inaccurate documentation, and only 40% receive wage slips, and often inadequate working conditions at construction sites with significantly higher fatality and accident results as a result of insufficient observance and enforcement of safety and health regulations. The Palestinian unemployment rate is nearly five times the global average and more than three times the average in the Arab states. The Palestinian labor market has the second highest unemployment rate in the world and the highest unemployment rate amongst women. Now we know so many very industrious and entrepreneurial Palestinian people and we know that those figures are singly because of the Zionist occupation of Palestine. Join me in welcoming Norda, who's going to talk to us now about her experience, and we'll talk about all those conditions. Welcome, Norda. Thank you, Nasser. Thanks for having me, and thanks for this uh, wonderful introduction that you just provided. Norda, you were born and grew up and are a citizen of the state of Israel. Yes. Take us through, firstly, your experience of workers' rights and your understanding of workers' rights within 48, firstly. Sure. As you know, Palestinians in 48 constitute 20% of the populations in Israel. However, they make almost 50% of the people living under poverty line in Israel. And that is a very stark statistic if you think about how, you know, as a minority, they make almost 50% of people under poverty line. So that speaks volume and that does indicate that there is a systemic and structural issue when it comes to Israel's economic policies, which is an extension of Israel's policies as settler colonial state towards Palestinians in 1948 uh, in Israel, but also everywhere else in the world. Now, Nora, you're a 48 pal. What about the East Jerusalem Palestinians? So Palestinians in East Jerusalem, they don't have a citizenship status. That means that they are permanent residents under the Israeli law. And that also means that they don't get to enjoy or benefit from clear status when it comes to employment and laws and regulation when it comes to um, integration, for instance, in, in the labor force or benefits that they may get. For instance, super, super annuation and other things. Next is the West Bank Palestinian. Yes, so that, that is true. Palestinians in the West Bank, they have Palestinian identity cards. So Israel does not recognize their existence. And we are talking about almost 3 million in, in the West Bank and 2 million in Gaza. So that's 5 million Palestinians who currently are you know, existent within uh, the, the geographical area which Israel exercises full and com complete effective control, but they're not recognized as people who uh, exist in terms of political entity. So what does that mean? It means that the, the, the laws of labor that Israel has created for Israelis don't apply for Palestinians, uh, including the ones who work in Israel and for instance, those who work in settlements as well, those who work in, in the Jordan Valley, the Israeli laws don't apply to them. So you would have a situation where there's, let's say, a Palestinian working for an Israeli employer, but they, the, the laws of Israel don't apply to them. However, the laws, for instance, of Jordan do apply to them. So you have a, a, a situation where, again, two people are subjected to the two different standards when it comes to laws and regulations um, of employment. So in effect, where during the week, Human Rights Watch released a report, another NGO saying that Israel is an apartheid state, 
Thankfully, this time they did ask for sanctions and called upon governments to limit aid and start to identify individuals for prosecution and ask the ICC to do the same. Within the West Bank Palestinians, Nora, there's talk about those two systems. Let's talk a little bit about the permit system because one, the permit system within the West Bank allows for West Bank Palestinians to work inside inverted commas, Israel proper. Those permits, that permit system was supposed to be evolved since 2016. They were looking at reforms to it. Not much has happened. The International Labour Organization estimates that something like 15% of a Palestinian's wage from the West Bank is paid in fees so they can actually get a permit. So something like 2,500 shekels a month, which gives them the right to work inside Israel where they don't get the same health insurance benefits, they don't get the same hourly rate of pay, they're still lined up at checkpoints trying to get through. The Palestinian economy is so depressed. People are forced to do this, to, you know, almost, you know, we're just one level above indentured slave. Yes, so this is this is the cruelty, you know, of occupation and settler colonialism, uh, again. And I think it's important that, you know, when we talk about uh, Palestinian workers and, and, and people who work under, um, let's say, the structure that Israel has created, be it in the West Bank or in, in 1948, uh, it's important that we take a, a wider look at economic policies of the state of Israel. And, you know, from the get-go, it's clear that th th that policy is about control. It's about control and exploitation. Um, and now, as we see, for instance, today, uh, the current policy is an absolute closure where all uh, Palestinian workers need permit in order to go and seek employment in Israel. The thing is that this was not always the case uh, because if we were to look back a little bit at um, when Israel first seized control in 1967 over the West Bank and Gaza, and that the whole area was classified as a, a military closed area, uh, it was then decided that they would allow Palestinians from the territories to come and to basically work in the territories, <laughs> because as they controlled it, they, they um, decided that they're, you know, they will not impose further, further restrictions on movement so that people can still work because it's also cheap labor for Israel as well. So Israel is still benefiting from that um, policy back then. Um, now, as a few few years later, they decided to uh, introduce very minor restrictions. So for instance, they said, um, we would allow them to uh, to be in Israel from 5 a.m. to 1 a.m. And, and, and for many years, that was the only restriction that they basically introduced. However, if we were to look at where there was a, a clear pivot in, in that policy, we would have to address the Oslo Agreement and the Paris Protocol, uh, in which basically Paris Protocol was an instrument in which uh, that, that was hoping to regulate the economic relations between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Through that agreement or those protocols, um, I mean, of course, there was some um, economic powers that were transferred to the Palestinian Authority, for instance, like taxation and establishment of a, a monetary authority, um, employment of civil service servants. Uh, but it's important to keep in mind and to highlight that Israel retained key powers that would enable Israel to control over the whole Palestinian economy. For instance, control of taxation, uh, control over import and export. And the third one, which is why we're talking here today, is control over, uh, over uh, workers' 
and entry of workers to Israel. So freedom of movement, again, of workers, that was another area which uh, Israel um, managed to take control over uh, in, through the Paris Protocol. Now, and I think the second intifada, uh, Israel started to basically exercise these powers in a very clear manner. So not just like it's a policy that was just, uh, you know, signed and, and in Paris or <laughs> through Oslo, it became something that is tangible throughout checkpoints and walls, but also uh, the, the system of permits, really restrictive system of permits that they introduced. So Nura, that matrix of control that we know that is apartheid, before the siege in Gaza, Gazans, they enjoyed the same level of freedom perhaps as the West Bankers. The reality is since the siege though, they've had no access to the outside world, no access to that, that economy that strangulates them. The fact of the matter, and as you said, post-Oslo Paris protocols, the Israeli government controls everything from entry and exit, not just of goods, but also of humans, the birth registry, the death registry, etc., radio spectrums, and what have you. What about what that's doing to the people and the economy? What do you hear and see what's happening to the people of Gaza? How are they coping with that? Yeah, so the, again, the, this policy, this you know policy of control, deliberately targets um, and weakens the um, any perspective of an independent Palestinian economy is something that has, has always been the core of you know the Israeli state. It's also under development of Palestinian economies. It's not just you know that they did not invest in Palestinian economy. It's deliberately targeting and weakening any Palestinian economy in order to progress, obviously, their political and economic interests, which is an expansionist project. Ongoing. I think Sarah Roy calls it not underdevelopment, Nora, but the de-development of Gaza. That would be a, a more accurate, the de-development of Gaza. And, and look, this is something, again, it's something that all along throughout the whole process, Israel is benefiting. Yeah, Israel has profited from the uh, exemption of custom duties on goods in the occupied territories in Israel. Obviously, uh, taxes that Israel collected from Palestinians were not, you know, did not go to any investments in the occupied territories. And a big part of them um, ended up in the Israeli in the Israeli Treasury, for instance, the creation of captive markets, so that they want to create a further dependency of Palestinians in the Israeli market, importation of some goods, as as we see in Gaza. You know, some, for instance, Gazans are allowed to import certain goods, but not others. So it's it's all up to the Israeli whimsical, so to speak, consideration that for, you can import shampoo, but you cannot import conditioner in Gaza. I mean, go figure. But the point is that this, the whole concept of captive market, so that they are, it's a siege. It's a siege. So that no one else is allowed economically deal or trade with the Palestinians unless it's done throughout Israeli channels, again, to eliminate any competition, but also creating obstacles for potential investors as well. And, and the other way that obviously Israel has benefited from this policy is the labor market that I mean, in the short run, Palestinians who work in Israel, they do benefit. And because, you know, wages also in, in Palestine are almost three times um, lower compared to wages in Israel. But when we are looking at the bigger picture, the bigger winner here is still Israel because these workers are underpaid. They're paid under the minimum wages in terms of health and regulations, uh, safety regulations. You, they, Israel doesn't have to worry about them. The workers, they, the employers, they don't have to worry about these kind of stuff. 
So it is still, by the end of the day, Israel is being is profiting massively from the, this entire policy of uh, captive market. Just on that, uh, Nura, I mean, it's easy, and I've spoken about this many times, you know, as a Palestinian living in Australia, living arguably the refugee's dream, you know, in the best country in the world, perhaps, if not home. Is there a stigma attached to the Palestinians who actually work in Israel or in settlements? Or is it survival? It's just survival. It's a tricky situation. Like it's this is this is the kind of what living under occupation means. By the end of the day, you end up doing things that are completely contradictory to your moral compass or your own national interests, for instance, because you don't have a choice. Because by the end, the end of the day, this is an asymmetry, right? They we live in an asymmetric. I mean, back home Palestinians live in an asymmetric dynamic where. As uh, you know, stateless people, people who don't really have institutions, and people who don't even the authority, the Palestinian Authority, is also under siege and under occupation. And it has, unless it works some kind of work with the with the Israeli authorities, like it, it can't exist. So the point here is that living under occupation is rough. It's cruel, and it gets you and it throws you into places where you are doing things that you wish you didn't have to do, but you have to because. Again, this whole situation was created, was imposed on you by settler colonialism. It was imposed on you by occupation. And by the end of the day, these people who go and work in the settlements, they have mouths to feed and they need to be the breadwinners and they need to be, go back home and just provide for their families. And, and the, you know, they do this knowing that they are in a way, they're working in settlements, like how contradictory is this? But they also go through so many obstacles and so many difficulties so that they can they can have that right to work, to earn money. You know, for instance, the, 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 the whole experience, the horrifying and dehumanizing experience of having to go through the checkpoint twice a day because they have to commute back and forth on the same day that, you know, some of them, most of them do that. Some of them end up staying for, you know, in Israel, inside Israel for a few days and then come back. But most of them, they do that kind of commute on a daily basis. And having to go through the whole, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and waking up at midnight so that they can be, because they know that they're going to be faced with long queues and some interrogation and abuse. Uh, but also some of them get shot at. They are trying to kind of enter Israel because not everyone has permits, but so many people need to work. So we have this situation created by the occupation. I know it's been documented by many human rights organizations, the security forces, the Shin Bet and et cetera, leverage that permit system. If you talk, we'll get you a permit, help you get a job. If you have a permit, we're going to revoke the permit unless you do talk. Yes, that is true. And they are, they are, they are very, so these group of people, the Palestinians who work inside Israel, but they don't have permits, so they're undocumented and they call them like illegal shabachim, they call it so illegal stayers or something. They are the most marginalized because in case they are caught, you have, there's no way for them to get any protection. So if they're caught and they're being uh, abused, and th there's been a lot of documented cases where uh, like, uh, you know, young workers uh, have been caught inside Israel. And sometimes it's even Jerusalem. They're caught in there without having any permits. So they were kidnapped by Israeli soldiers and they were taken to some alley and beaten and abused. And, you know, they stole their money and they just they took their uh, stripped them naked and, and they left them there to bleed. And they just ran. So in, in these instances, the victim has no address to turn to and say, look, this has happened and I need some protection. 
you were speaking before about settlement workers and being contrary to their national interests and just the challenge of merely meeting survival. I'd imagine there'd be Palestinian workers working on settlements, illegal settlements, that might actually be their own ancestral lands. Yes, that is true. That is the, the again, this, this contradiction that they are being forced to work on their ancestral land and build houses that are not theirs and houses that they are not allowed to live in. We should make a mention of the fact these settlements are Jewish only. Yes, yes. With settlement committees to make sure that you're of the right character. Absolutely. And this is not just in the West Bank, by the way. So even inside Israel in 1948, these kibbutz or yeshuvs or Jewish-only communities, they have committees, cultural committees, that they would decide if anyone is fit, uh, culturally fit to, to live in this place. And very often they ask questions. And, and this is a personal experience of a friend of mine as well. It was an experiment. They weren't going to really live there, but they tried, her and her husband, they said, you know what, let's try and see what happens. So they applied for a kibbutz and they went through um, the committee evaluation process. And then one of the questions they asked them was, oh, well, so we celebrate Independence Day here and we have barbecue. What do you do on Independence Day? Obviously referring to the Nakba. Um, so, and this is, you know, the, obviously the answer that we don't celebrate independence. This is a Nakba day for us. So we, we go to protests or marches. And obviously this was the question that quote unquote tipped the balance, not in their favor. So <laughs> they ended up being rejected, obviously. Of course. And one, another one of the questions I've heard they ask is, you know, what year did you serve in the army? Yeah. And, and this is, that's true. And this is a question that they ask also sometimes when they're employing, uh, people inside Israel as well. And, and this is, again, one of the ways in which um, there's uh, the discrimination and racism is prevalent inside Israel and, and it targets Palestinians is that they ask you that question, where did you serve in the army or how many years did you serve in the army? And if you know, or, or sometimes they are very clear, they say, we only take um, post-service employees. So one-fifth of the country's citizenry are unavailable for employment here. Exactly. Nora, I want to highlight the differences. You know, we talk about it being apartheid. Human Rights Watch now has, Betzalem has also said so. I mean, the Palestinians have been saying for decades it's apartheid, but apparently it's becoming mainstream now because some white people said so. The birth of Israel was lauded around many, many supporters of May Day, many supporters of workers' rights because of the utopian concept of the kibbutz. Now, we know that it's a lie, and it's increasingly being exposed that that socialist experiment was just a red washing, another form of Zionist washing to legitimise the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the colonial state of Israel. Nora, let's do a simple comparison of a Jewish Israeli and compare them to a West Bank Palestinian and what rights differentiate between the two, but also if you can include a 48 pal as well. So the three statuses and what they might enjoy from labor protection laws, et cetera, minimum pay. Sure. Um, so, so when we're comparing between Israeli workers and Palestinian workers in general, um, and yes, we do need to make that distinction because for instance, um, Palestinians in the West Bank who do have permits to go inside Israel, Israel and work inside Israel. So they normally work in constructions or in agriculture or in services. So the comparisons start from there, as in like there's very limited 
um, areas in which they are allowed to um, integrate in the um, workforce. Um, so you won't see a Palestinian from Ramallah, like a lawyer working in an Israeli law firm, very rarely that you would see that because they also um, uh, allow um, people to come based on their needs. Um, Israelis don't want to do the, <laughs> the construction workers, like the, the, they don't really want to do constructions. They don't want to work in um, all these um, hard speak. So they, they need to find someone who does it and they either bring people from uh, overseas or Palestinians from the West Bank. But also Palestinians inside Israel as well. They most of, mostly they are um, if they're not doing construction work or agriculture, they are in very limited areas uh, and they have very limited um, uh, opportunities to engage in the workforce. For instance, you're either um, the main thing that they can do is great in the education in the education sector. Very very little, um, maybe. 2% of high-tech workers are Palestinians inside Israel. Again, the gap continues and extends, and it's not just throughout the recruitment process where they uh, ask for, uh, you know, where did you serve in the army? But also, by the end of the day, the wages, there's huge disparities in wages as well. So, uh, like an Arab citizen um, or Palestinian Israeli citizen would earn significantly less for doing the same job than a Jewish Israeli citizen. Apartheid in the wages and conditions as well. That is true. Seems we can't escape that word, but thankfully the world is waking up to the apartheid that is Israel and we won't be long before it's boycotted and divested from and sanctioned and hopefully we get the same outcome as South Africa. But in fact, we wanna go one step further than what happened in South Africa and we need a complete decolonization from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Absolutely, without a doubt, Nasser. And I do think it's just a matter of time because all these structures, as we as we saw in South Africa, but also other parts of the world, are doomed to basically collapse because there's there's a limit to how much abuse and how much violence and how much how much aggression people can enact on other people without having to suffer from consequences or being um, meaning uh, impunity. So. Thanks so much, Noura, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on. That's Noura Mansour, Palestinian educator, writer, activist, and community organizer. Thanks again, Noura. Thank you very much, Nasser. And happy May Day to you. Happy May Day to you too. This week, Human Rights Watch released their report into Palestine-Israel, and they have now joined the consensus movement that Israel is an apartheid state. They've even asked the International Criminal Court to investigate Israeli officials for being implicated in the crimes against humanity of apartheid or persecution. And it's a significant shift from where they've been, and this is a New York-based group, and they've centered their approach on human rights and accountability rather than the usual peace process narrative, uh, which have been prevailing for so long. What's interesting is they're using the sort of language we've been talking about for a long time. They're joining that consensus that the state is preferencing or uh, privileging Jewish supremacy. The report also says that Israel has pursued an intent to maintain the domination of Jewish Israelis over Palestinians throughout the territory it controls. In the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip, the intent has been coupled with systematic oppression of Palestinians and inhuman acts committed against them. 
The combination of these elements, they say, amounts to the crime of apartheid. It also suggests that UN states should establish an international commission of inquiry to investigate systematic discrimination and repression based on group identity in both the Palestinian territories and within Israel proper. These are really strong words. We should remember that Palestinian rights groups such as Al-Haq have already called for fact-finding missions into the apartheid regime of Israel. Reality is the US has failed for decades to live up to its obligations with respect to the Palestinians in that, in the first instance, it allowed for the state of Israel to be created on indigenous Palestinian land and has abandoned the Palestinians ever since. Hopefully this is a foreboding for what is to come as we spoke last week with Professor George Bisharat with the ICC. I'm looking forward to Israel's Hague moment, Israel's Nuremberg trial moment. I can't wait for war criminals like Netanyahu and his buddies to face personal sanctions along with the state of Israel. So really good news. Moving forward, it'll be a great advocacy tool for us, but we really need to remember for these organizations to center Palestinian voices, to center Palestinian lived experiences. We can tell everyone what's going on. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share the podcast, tell your friends, and hope to see you at our Nakba rally on the 22nd. And happy May Day. We're coming into May when we commemorate Nakba, when Palestinians lost Palestine. Free Palestine Melbourne's organising a rally on the 22nd of May at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. So put that in your calendars from now, Saturday the 22nd of May at 1pm. Hope to see you there. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.